The metaverse is emerging as the next big technology platform and promises to be the next frontier for human experiences on the internet. Into the Metaverse covers companies, technologies, and trends that are bringing these promises to life. Join creator and host Jonathan Ross Friedman, founder and CEO of SuperSocial, as he interviews the brilliant minds that are building, shaping, and investing in the Metaverse. Welcome back, everyone, to this latest episode of Into the Metaverse. I hope you've been listening to some of our recent episodes. We had a great conversation with Stephen Gay from Mode Maison. Jan and I had a great convo a few weeks ago. What's going on? The two of us are back today to, to bring you more of our thoughts on what's going on in the world of interactive media, entertainment, and technology, and how it all relates to the metaverse. We're going to touch on a few topics today, just like we always do. Uh, first, we're going to hit on the smash hit game Power World and kind of think about what that means for the impact of IP protection in a UGC world, because that's really what I think is most important. And then we've got a lot of other interesting topics ahead. So without further ado, Jan, how you doing? I'm good. So pumped. I mean, it's a new week. Monday is a state of mind. So let's start with a bang. Let's get it. So as I said, right into Power World. So this is a smash hit gaming sensation. If you haven't seen it, people are describing it basically as Pokemon with guns, but it also has, you know, Zelda Breath of the Wild open world vibes. It has crafting vibes of kind of like Minecraft. So it's, it's a little bit of a lot of different things all put together. But again, it's, it's also raising a lot of questions around IP protections. How much is inspiration versus copying, right? And I think that's a big discussion point that we're going to get into, but just some stats before we do. Power World eclipsed 8 million units sold on Steam within six days after its early access release, which if you do the math equates to about $200 million of gross, actually more to, than $200 million gross revenue uh, on the platform before the Steam commission. So, it's, it's a tremendous success financially, for sure. It's also the top of the trending now section on Xbox Game Pass. The game is available on the, on the Microsoft service. We don't know the commercial terms of their deal. Uh, you know, super used, used, uh, he's an analyst in the, in the gaming sector was speculating a couple million units feasibly could have moved on Game Pass as well. So quite a success. It hit a peak of 2.1 million concurrent users on Steam which is the second most of all time on the platform, which is insane. That's more than CS2 and other games like Apex Legends. Uh, again, the, the, the controversy here is that the game kind of does look like it has Pokemon, Pokemon inspiration. What does this mean for IP protections, particularly as we think about the burgeoning UGC metaverse platforms like Roblox, like what Fortnite Creative and UEFN are building? You know, Jan, I'd love your perspective here, and then we can kind of get into it. I mean, uh, look, it's a, obviously a, a contentious topic, but first and foremost, the bottom line is they created something people love and that's incredible. They've built something people want to play. The revenue numbers you've mentioned in such an early stage of the game is absolutely incredible. And I think they deserve credit for just building something people love. It's just, you know, I've been reading this ebook on the weekend, Make Something Wonderful by Steve Jobs, or at least based on a lot of Steve Jobs' writing and story throughout his career. And it's called Make Something Wonderful. So they obviously made something wonderful. Now, you know, I think that very easy to get bogged down with the, the specificities of what did they take? What did they copy? You know, I think every creative endeavor is inspired by something. And in a way, it seems like they took a lot of inspiration. Right? They took a lot of inspiration from a lot of games, but they created something different, something new. If what they created was exactly the same as something else, then 
that's probably wouldn't be successful because people are not dumb. People are not going to switch from one game just so they can try a copycat, right? And so I think we need to give credit for innovators who are assembling different things, bringing different things together. Was it inspired by Pokemon? Of course, but why wouldn't it be? Was it inspired by Ark? Yes, why wouldn't it be? Did it take some things from other games? Yes, why wouldn't they? So I think they took and master assembled a bunch of different things. Somehow, magically, they turned it into a game that people love. These revenue numbers, these unit sales are, they leave no room for imagination that, oh, maybe it's, maybe it's good. It's a sensation. They built something people obviously craved for. Kudos for them. I prefer to all of the naysayers and the people who are like, oh, you know, they've been stealing and copying. And that's nonsense. Everyone is inspired in copying to some extent. That's innovation. Innovation is building on what worked before. But if it's not new, if there is no 10%, 20% newness, then it's not going to work. People are not going to switch into a new game just because it's new. Definitely not in these revenue numbers. So that's my point of view. Fully agree with you. And, and you know, I liked all the memes that came out. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of like people comparing Dragon Quest to Pokemon and all the characters or Digimon to Pokemon. It's, you know, it's clear that Pokemon itself was influenced by things that came before it or things that were competing with it at the time. So, uh, you know, and it's also, you've seen this in the gaming industry as well, not just with art design characters and things like that, but also with systems, right? Or, or, or gameplay types, right? Battle Royale was, you know, made by PUBG and Fortnite very quickly copied it. And then Call of Duty copied it two years later, right? So Apex Legends copied it a year after that. So it's, it, you know, we don't even talk about this when it comes to systems, let alone systems that users don't even see. Things like, you know, retention hooks and, and monetization hooks that are standard across the industry that everyone kind of copies from what works. It, 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 I, I fully agree with you. So I'm in the camp of they made something really cool. I've played very little of it because I've, I've been quite busy, but I did get it on Game Pass. So and I'm not one of those 8 million on Steam, but I'm, I'm within the Game Pass camp. But it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it kind of checks all the boxes. It just, it just, you know, at the end of the day, gaming is about making something fun that people just want to enjoy. And this game checks all the boxes for me. And, you know, as much as there's controversy out there, this is just how the entertainment industry at large, not just gaming, has evolved. It's exactly what you described, and I fully agree. And the controversy probably just even helps them, right? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely like raises the specter. Like, wait, there's Pokemon with guns that people you know are hating on. I want to try that. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that people have been calling it Pokemon with guns. It's not the studio that defined it as Pokemon with guns, right? <laughs> exactly. So I think when the community give you that avalanche of promotion you obviously done something right. And sure, haters will be haters. It's very difficult to get into the specificities of like, what did they copy? What didn't they copy? Obviously, it was inspired by a lot of different games, some more, some less. But people are not dumb. People are not going to spend $200 million on a game that does exactly what someone else has created. Makes no sense, right? So they obviously created something new that people love and crave. And kudos for them. It's incredibly difficult to do what they've done. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our next topic today. And this is another case of Apple seemingly being a big bad guy when it comes to working with people that generate a lot of profit for Apple. In the wake of the Apple versus Epic case, and there's lots of also jurisdictional regulatory actions, uh, this really has to do with what's happening in Europe right now with the Digital Markets Act. So for those that don't know, this is a, a bill that or a set of regulations that was passed by the EU recently or went into act in the EU recently. Um, one of the things that it allows to do, it, it forces platforms to allow 
um, third-party payment systems inside of platform app stores. So for example, if you publish a game on the iOS app store, you don't have to use Apple's payments, which previously Apple forced you to do, or it enables you to launch your own app store altogether and completely usurp the Apple app store. Uh, previously, you know, you weren't able to do that on Apple. On Google, you were able to, but the language was kind of like, you're downloading malware, don't do this when you tried to do it. So it was very hard to do that. Where the EU, so where Apple came back to the EU now is they announced kind of how they're going to go about this. And this is where the sticking points kind of hit with developers. So Apple is going to allow off-platform payments and third-party app stores, but they're still going to charge you 17% commission instead of the normal 30%. In other regions like the U.S. where they said they'll allow third-party payments inside the app store, they're charging 27%. The other sticking point is in the details, though, and this really caught a lot of people's attention because also it kind of resonated with what Unity was trying to do with, with their runtime fees. They're also going to charge 50 euro cents per download uh, for every install over a million annually. And that also includes updates to apps based on my conversations with app developers. So not only is it every time you acquire a user, but every time you update the app, that counts as an install or a download. And once you eclipse a million downloads annually, they're going to charge you 50 euro cents for every single time that app is downloaded or updated. That's an insane cost on developers, and it's going to be a huge hindrance to them leaving the app store and using off-party payments. For smaller developers, another big hurdle will also be the fact that Apple's going to require you to post a million dollar letter of credit. So basically like a revolving credit lines so you can basically access cash if you use off-platform payments. So what it looks like to me is Apple is doing a lot to make it really difficult to let other people get out of its payments and commission system. Uh, Yon, what's your take here now that I went through a lot of kind of legalese? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that Apple is taking care of its own interests and it's not on Apple to succumb or be the good guy. That's not their job. Shareholders don't pay Apple. Shareholders don't buy Apple stock for Apple to do the right thing. Shareholders buy stock of Apple so Apple can be the most profitable company in the world. That's how this whole system works. So the, the incentives that Apple has are clearly, like any large enterprise, is to figure out a way to protect their market dominance. So I, I don't think anyone should be surprised here. And I read Daniel Ake's LinkedIn post where he's sharing how incredibly disappointed he is by Apple's behavior, that once upon a time, they were innovators. They are still innovators, but they're also, <laughs> you know, they also fell into an incredibly lucrative business model that really happened kind of sporadically and accidentally. I, I remember the stories about how the 70-30 of the App Store was decided it, they didn't really know. They just used an analogy from like a different marketplace. They didn't really know this is what the marketplace is going to look like 15, you know, 15 years later. So I, again, like in the conversation previously, I think people have a lot of expectations. <laughs> and I'm just very pragmatic, I think, and deterministic that companies will do what, what's right for them. I think it's really the jobs of the regulators and now the EU to really see how do they work around what Apple has done to make sure that consumers are protected and that there is fair competition. Apple's job is not to enable fair competition. Apple's job is to be a dominant business and enterprise, and that's what they're focusing on. I do obviously believe that there will be significant ramifications to the model that they're proposing. 
which will ultimately lead to lack of innovation on the app ecosystem and the type of things people build, which will ultimately increase the pressure for a competing ecosystem to emerge, although that doesn't seem to be what's going to happen. And if anything, as we evolve into more computing paradigms with Vision Pro launching and, and potentially other computing devices in the future, you know, we know Apple is working on an autonomous vehicle, so they want to build a car. They've been working on it for a decade already, so they haven't really launched a car yet. Uh, I think, you know, robotics is going to be a big, big, big frontier as artificial intelligence and the cost of computation uh, decrease. Uh, and I think these these device ecosystems will 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 need to you know be open for more innovation and disruption and and certainly Apple's actions here would ultimately hamper innovation uh, at least in 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 the mobile app ecosystem and that's unfortunate but but again I, I Apple may realize that they can do something different if they believe it will serve their bottom line you know in the next 10 15 20 years obviously that's not how they think about it the dynamics of the market at the moment. So it may well mean that we need a, a, a bigger intervention from the regulator until Apple may or may not realize that what they're doing is, is, is a monopoly. It is quite surprising, given all of the things that happened with Microsoft back in the day, that the regulator hasn't yet realized that this control of the market, uh, I don't know if it's because of the regulator or because of the legal arguments of why Apple is not a monopoly at the moment, uh, but I think there is a broader conversation, obviously, on big tech and, and, and monopolies that I think, at least in the U.S., the, the regulator is trying to figure out. And, and we'll have to keep an eye on what's happening. But but yeah, certainly there will be. I, I can't say I'm happy about it. I, I can't blame them. They're doing what's right for them. But I think it would definitely hurt innovation. Fully agree with you that, you know, Apple's doing what's in their best interest for their bottom line for the next, say, five years I think it's also just so I'm, I'm fully aligned with you. I think it's important to call out that, you know, Epic kind of started this fight against the App Store monopoly, as they call it, in 2018. So we're six years in, and this is as far as it's gone. You know, Apple looks like they're in a pretty good stance to defend this, this strong position they're in, even with some regulatory slashes at their, at their position. And, you know, I rem I'm, I'm calling back to the Epic Google case and also the Google settlement with the, uh, the various states in the U.S. where they were forced to basically open up to third-party payments inside the Google Play Store in the U.S. But when the judge was asked to comment on the commission that Google could take for off-platform payments, so instead of taking 30%, taking 27%, but then you have to pay, you know, Exola or some other payment processing company 5 to 10% on top of that, you're worse off. The judge said it's not his place to rule on that. And so now... We're also going to start getting into the realm of, do we want regulators and courts to rule on pricing? Do we want them to say what the right number is? And, you know, as someone who likes to think of free market capitalism, that also gets scary. And so it, it's, it's, it's a very interesting area where we're going to have a lot of regulatory actions coming in that I think are going to continue to make it more open for developers. But at the same time, we're also wading into the area where governments and courts are setting pricing for services on digital platforms. And that to me is slightly worrisome. And so sticking with Apple, moving on, uh, we also wanted to come back to the Apple Vision Pro, a much happier topic than talking about regulations and, and app store commissions. But uh, we talked about a couple of weeks ago in our, in our episode about the launch window and kind of how they, you know, what the supply chain was getting ready for in terms of the initial 
ramp up of production and the annual units. But what we're also starting to get a sense of is which app uh, developers are going to be supporting the device at launch. Um, according to Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, he's the Apple goat, right? You know, uh, Netflix, YouTube, and Spotify won't launch uh, native apps for the Vision Pro, and, and they won't enable their iPad apps to work on the device either. Um, so you either have to access their services through just the native web browser or not at all on those devices. Uh, it's also unclear if Meta will support the device yet. We haven't heard anything, but this was just interesting to me because I remember way back when the iPhone and even the, the iPod before that with the app stores came out, um, there was no native Facebook app for several years. They were one of the last people to go away from the uh, mobile web browser focus to native app uh, focus. But there will be a lot of third-party apps confirmed. Notable ones that I picked out include Disney+, Plus, the entire Microsoft Office suite, uh, Zoom, and Crunchyroll. So it looks like there's going to be some entertainment, a lot of Office productivity, uh, which fits with a, what a lot of what we've talked about, this being a productivity enhancement, more enterprise-focused device, at least at first. But... Uh, curious where you shake out on kind of this initial slate of apps and services available. You know, it's, I think it's really interesting that it is clearly a situation where Apple is working really hard to populate the launch with mega apps. And I'm trying to understand where are they coming at it from. And my instinct is that this may show a bit of their lack of confidence on a massive wave of developers getting excited about building applications for the Vision Pro. Not to say that they don't think it will happen. They may think it may take more time. And so in a device that costs $3,500, they may think that there's two really compelling customer groups to focus on. The first one is people who are just really want to buy that and use it for, for entertainment, which really well aligns with what we've seen so far with Meta, right? It's, it's entertainment-based, maybe some fitness, maybe some games, but really consumption. And it seems like Apple is really, really pushing on movies and music and, and entertainment at large. And so that's one customer group. The other customer group is, which they're less highlighting actually at the moment, like a lot of their ads, everything is just, it's just about entertainment. But the other customer group that I suspect will, will start to see more momentum as they actually deliver products is the enterprise clients around productivity and collaboration and, and all of that. And so these are kind of the two groups that I feel they are focusing on. But I have to say, I think the fact that they are really, really focused so heavily on convincing people to buy because there is these mega apps on entertainment, I, I think shows where Apple feels that the value is at the moment. It's kind of a bigger TV screen, essentially. But, you know, I think the big test is going to be when they actually ship and developers get to build stuff. And let's see what developers build. Everyone talks about, you know, the incredible app ecosystem around iOS, certainly. But I think when it comes to the launch, it's pretty clear that they're going all in on this is the biggest TV you're ever going to have. And it's right in front of you. Yeah, I did see Emily Chang from Bloomberg tweeted that she got a demo of it and it was it blew her away. Like she was really, you know, she said she had goosebumps while like watching a movie on it. So, you know, definitely the technology seems pretty cool. I think if we won't, we've only seen positive things like leak out from people that have tested it. But at the same time, the people that are testing it are the ones that are going to go, you know, goo goo over it anyways. So, you know, it is, it is kind of like a little bit of a circular loop in that sense. But uh I mean, I, 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 I think it's just going to take time. And especially when you consider 
adapting content to that platform, there is a cost benefit analysis that has to happen, right? What's the install base going to look like? And does it really make sense to, for Spotify to rethink how to make music native on that device? Video, I guess, as you're saying, a bigger TV screen can make sense. But the, I, I think it totally, for some of these types of services, it does also require a rethink of how you deliver that content. And until the install base is sufficient, uh, it doesn't necessarily justify the cost of building those apps natively for this platform. And so I think that's also a consideration as well. Totally agree. Cool. And then sticking with Netflix, since we're kind of tying everything together throughout this episode, I, I tried my best. Um, uh, they, they reported earnings last week, uh, pretty strong earnings, uh, you know, lots of subscriber ads. We're going to focus on the gaming section of what they talked about. Uh, and, and kind of their longer term gaming strategy as it relates to their broader IP focus. Uh, they did say that engagement in their games services tripled in 2023 uh, versus 2022, which, you know, three is bigger than one, but it's still growing very rapidly. And that the GTA trilogy was its most successful launch to date in terms of installs and engagement. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, they had the, the there's a, I think it's GTA San Andreas, GTA 3, and there's one other in there, maybe maybe Vice City, like some of the older GTA games, it's it's a trilogy. And they made that available to their subscribers on mobile devices as part of the subscription bundle. Um, the company also noted that some consumers actually, they think, signed up simply to play the GTA trilogy, which I think is the first time we've really heard them say that they've seen incremental gross subscriber additions from games. Uh, that's, that's a talking point for a second. So previously, it was reported in the Wall Street Journal that Netflix was considering or thinking about other ways to monetize games, not just directly from the subscription, but potentially from ads or in-app purchases, which are more native to mobile gaming. The Wall Street Journal also noted they've already spent a billion dollars cumulatively, uh, cumulatively on the gaming uh, ventures. Management on the call kind of skirted the question. They didn't really answer it at all. They basically said that it's early days for their gaming strategy, and they want to be confident in the benefits to retention metrics from gaming before scaling the investment further. Uh, Netflix co-CEO Greg Peters also did an interview with Stratechery, um, where he also kind of reiterated the same comma. He didn't really say anything else. He said that eventually they expect to be able to drive more subscriptions from gaming, and then maybe down the road they can consider other ways to monetize it. But right now they're simply focused on on figuring out what works and building. It still seems like they're you know in the first inning of their gaming strategy. How do you think the strategy evolves from here? And on some of these other points around the investment they're making, a billion dollars already, versus what it means for the bottom line of Netflix? I find them to be quite hush-hush. I think they're making it sound, you know, it's just one big experiment for us. I, I, I don't think that's, I, I don't believe that's how they think about it. I think, in my opinion, Netflix clearly sees gaming as an incredibly important vertical of their business for the next 10, 15 years for, for, for a few reasons. Number one, gaming just as a content vertical is not something that they can ignore. Just right straight off the bat. It's just not something they can ignore. Second, gaming is a really interesting part of their flywheel, right? They're, they're doing TV shows and movies and gaming is just a really great part of their IP expansion. Uh, either if it's IP they own, right? Like uh, Stranger Things or IP they license, like, you know, other shows like uh, The Witcher, right? Which is a license of a, of, of, a, of a game, but they can also build it as a game on Netflix ultimately. So that's the second thing. And then the third 
is, if you recall that Reed Hastings said that their biggest competitor of Netflix is Fortnite, not some other entertainment company. I'm sure there's the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. He did say that though. So they also understand that virtual worlds is becoming more important and platform like Roblox and Fortnite and Xbox as well could evolve to ring fence to corner Netflix and prevent Netflix from having a piece of those, you know, gaming environment, gaming platforms, right? And, and all of those companies will have some form of a subscription service to, to the content that they provide. So, so these three things, right? The gaming as a vertical, as a business vertical, IP expansion revenue, and virtual world platforms as a real serious competitor to Netflix's future. All of those things to me highlight how important gaming is for, for Netflix. So the billion dollar they invested, to me, that's nothing. I, I'm certain that they're going to invest, continue to invest and invest more. The key question is not if they will find success. I think the key question for me is how big that success would be and would it really move the needle for really a, a, a gigantic enterprise like Netflix is today, which is obviously by far the category leader in, in streaming, right? In, in linear, t- linear content streaming, can they become the leading streamer of 3D content, of a gaming virtual world? I, I think to be seen, but I suspect... And I expect to see much more investment in the future. I do think they have a chance. Look, I tried, I, I'm, a, I'm a Netflix subscriber. I tried, I, I, I go into Netflix, you know, maybe once or twice a week. And, and I tried their games. And look, these are primarily at the moment, you know, kind of mobile games, right? Uh, are they going to expand that? I don't know. Are they going to do more than these kind of standard mobile games? Let's see. But I'm curious if at any point, they may need to consider that their gaming content actually requires a different app. I know it kind of sounds you know, weird at the moment, but it's so hard to change perception and positioning for consumers. And people know Netflix to be a streaming service for TV shows and movies, but primarily TV shows. Changing that perception so hundreds of millions of gamers also think of Netflix as a gaming platform, that's not an easy thing to do. Similar to what we talked about other platforms like you know, Fortnite changing its perception from a game to a platform, Roblox changing its perception from a kids platform to a, 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 pl- a utility for all ages around social, uh, Xbox changing Game Pass from games to movies and TV shows. I, I, don't, I don't think that's easy. I don't even know if they want that as part of their strategy. So it's not easy to do those changes of positioning, not in terms of capital investment, but really from, from a user standpoint. So I, I don't think this is a slam dunk in terms of like getting to success. But I think their strategy makes a lot of sense. They should probably invest more. The key question is how big and how successful can they be with this strategy? Yeah, I, a, a couple of things I would add, and, and Greg Peters pointed this out in that, in that Techery interview. You know, one thing he noted in terms of alternative monetization and, and consumer behaviors, Netflix users are used to paying once a month for everything, right? And so whether you break out gaming into a separate subscription or you have a separate tier going forwards for gaming, that's slightly against the ethos of what Netflix has gotten consumers used to. Whereas at a fixed price, you get everything in the catalog. You might have to pay more for multiple screens or whatever, right? But they have those behaviors entrenched in their user base. And it's very hard to do to break that in a way that doesn't hurt your, your value that you provide to your customers and how the customers perceive you. So that's a really important point that I took away from that interview. I'd also add, you know, you're talking about, will it be successful? I mean, the, the first question is, how do you measure success if you're not 
directly monetizing, right? Because, you know, if, if you're just sitting there and saying, hey, we're going to spend all this money to make games and then they're going to, you know, generate lots of revenue, we can see the P&L potential. Like that's one thing. But if you're talking just about simply retention, which is the main goal right now for the games business, Netflix's churn is very, very low. It's the lowest amongst the streaming services. The benefits to churn reduction, you know, they exist, but, you know, there's only so much, you know, LTV per customer you're going to get from, from reducing churn. So there is kind of like a fixed opportunity set. And then on the subscriber edition side, right, Netflix is very highly saturated in, in tier one markets, which is really what they're going after, right, for this business. Because, you know, we, we build on Roblox. Roblox is a great example. You have to localize content to expand in other countries. That's the same as the TV and film content that Netflix produces. You can't just throw mobile games built for the West into India and expect them to be successful. For example, there's cultural differences, language differences that have to be accounted for. And so when you're thinking about the tier one markets opportunity set, they're already kind of largely saturated on a household basis. And so the question becomes, what's the incremental headroom for, for subscriber additions in those markets? Or are they going to be building content for markets where they're not penetrated? And then what's the return on that as well? So, you know, it, it, the, 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 I, I'm personally skeptical on the gross subscriber edition story. I don't think people are going to sign up for Netflix just because of games. You know, they threw out the GTA story as an example, but it's also really easy to cherry pick the most successful gaming franchise of all time and say, yeah, we added a couple thousand subscribers or whatever the number was because we gave away the most successful gaming franchise of all time. So I'd, li I'd like to see more success, particularly from the first party studios they're building uh, before I'm, I'm fully convinced. I will say, and I've spoken to people that have worked at Netflix on the gaming side, they do believe that they can drive subscriber additions and they believe that they can raise ARPUs because of gaming. Uh, they can raise the price of the subscription because of gaming. So if that's successful, then yes, this makes a lot of sense, but I'm not convinced yet. Yeah, yeah. I, look, I, I agree. I think they'll, they'll succeed to some extent. The question is, will it be big enough to allow them to continue and invest, right? And, and they need to see a hockey stick of up, uh, up, up of, of revenue per user in order to justify further investments because their model is investing in, in content. That's what they do. They're not gonna they're not gonna change their business model. So it needs to prove itself. But uh, I, I think it's a smart strategy. And if anyone could pull it off, it's probably Netflix. Full, fully agree. With that, I think we'll leave it. That was a nice 30-minute conversation. Hope you guys enjoyed our thoughts on what's going on. And we'll be back to you uh, later this week with more great conversations. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Into the Metaverse. We hope you learned a lot and explored new aspects of the metaverse. 